0: Marzia, this is my first time recording the podcast, and you are such a good friend that I literally texted you three days ago and was like, I'm going to start a podcast. Can you come on? And you were like, yeah, sure. So if you had to guess, three guesses, what do you think this podcast is about? Oh,
1: no. Okay. All right. Number one, it could be about strong, intelligent women making difficult life choices and going their own way. Um, because I feel like that's something that you and uh, your friends all have in common. It could be about technology and how technology interfaces with society and how uh, socio technical systems can make things better or worse sometimes. Um, or it could be about identity and community and how uh, community can help to shape and transform your identity. Uh, or, you know, your identity can sometimes actually help to shape and transform your community.
0: So you got conned. You just wrote the bio of the podcast. Oh, no! (laughs) You have an incredible career. You've always been good at school. I love my career. I love working. You know this. And we also have an identity that people cannot unsee. We're Muslim women, and we're strong Muslim leads. It's
1: it's such a good description of... um, of, I think what is a, a complex issue, I think, uh, you know, earlier today, I texted you that that Spotify uh, podcast, <laughs> Identity Politics on a Friday night. Um, it's an Iranian American who's talking about the complexity of white identity, if you are part of an immigrant group, who is uh, codified as white, but then also you are often Vilified, you're often demonized, and people, exactly as you're saying, they cannot unsee your identity once seen. They, they categorize you as a Muslim woman, a Middle Eastern woman, a Western Asian, whatever associations they have with those identities. Those are with you forever. And so I, I totally, I love your your characterization.
0: We are part of this generation where we're writing our own narrative and ensuring our stories aren't written by others. But the thing is like, you're not just a woman in tech or as we'll get into it, a freaking MIT professor of computer science. You're Muslim too. We're these strong Muslim leads. I think that we, no matter whether we like it or not, we represent this community. And we are writing this narrative. And as much as we want to kind of sit it out, we can't. We both have daughters. We can't. We both have sons that need to be good men. It's
1: so true. It's. I think our, our personalities are not such that we would be sitting out, even if we did not have children. But I think having children makes it feel even more urgent, where there's this sense that, well, if if I don't address this uh inconsistency or this um, bias, if, if I don't say something, then what does that mean? That means that my daughter's going to have to deal with it. What does that mean? That means that my son might think it's okay to say or do those things. So I, I do think that adds this additional
0: urgency. You're totally right. This is actually the perfect time to introduce you.
1: Okay, uh, so I am a, uh, I'm currently a professor, uh, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in computer science and medicine. And I will be moving my lab to uh, MIT. I'll be jointly appointed in IMS uh, and ECS. So that's both the Electrical Engineering Computer Science Department and the Institute for Medical Evaluative Sciences. And uh, generally what I do is uh, research around how to make machine learning in health healthy And I I use healthy because what I mean is I I think that we have a lot of work to do to make models work well in a healthcare setting on complex heterogeneous data that's generated by human processes. Uh, But also when we're talking about healthcare, which is often a literal matter of life or death, you have these extra considerations like, is the model fair? Is the model robust? Is the model private? Uh, Those are, you know, good questions to ask in any setting, but they're somehow more primal in a health setting. Uh, so those are the uh, sort of the intellectual questions that I'm interested in. I, I don't know how to describe myself personally. I uh, I am a uh, an Iranian uh, Norwegian American. So my, my father is an Iranian immigrant. Um, I grew up in the US. Uh, my mother's father is Norwegian and her uh, mother is is American, but uh, I tested my mitochondrial DNA one summer when I was bored in a bio lab in Oxford. And it's French. <laughs> so there's some French in there. I uh, grew up in the US. I uh, was homeschooled. I went to college uh, young at 15. Um, after getting my bachelor's, I worked for a couple years and then uh, decided that I really wanted to go back to school. So I uh, applied for and received a Marshall scholarship, did a master's at Oxford, um, applied for a PhD uh, in computer science at MIT, and uh, was accepted and, and graduated. And so I, I feel like my, my intellectual questions have defined a lot of my, um, even my personal life, because they've led to really fantastic experiences where uh, I've gotten to travel a lot, um, I've gotten to meet a lot of really interesting people, um, I think, you know, uh, personally, I have three children, I uh, wear a hijab, and so I am uh, immediately and uh, very um, definitely identifiable as being a Muslim to a a random person who meets me on the street. So uh, throughout my life, I have had to deal with the biases and assumptions of, honestly, you know, it, it would maybe even be fine if it was only, you know, racist, you know, uh, go back home comments, which I totally get. But even when I'm like parking my car, like I park my car, I go to get my kids out of the car and random men, it's always men will, will come up to me and say, can I tell you about how you could have parked your car better? My 10 year old is looking at me. She's like, do you know this man? I'm like, no, honey. It's because I am a minority woman. It's really, it's really funny because I was, I was recently in the park with my three kids, talking to a a friend of mine, uh, who is who is a brown woman. She's a Western Asian woman, uh, and you know, my my kids are are playing in this in this park on the University of Toronto campus, and this this old guy walks up to us. And I'm thinking he's going to ask directions or something, right? Because we're just, we're sitting on a park bench, you know, chatting, watching the kids outside, you know, trying to get some outside time and these, you know, quarantine days. And uh, he says, are you watching your children? They are playing on that tree. They are, they are climbing branches. And I'm like, how many factual statements are you going to make? That that honestly, you seem to be concerned with, but I am not concerned with. And so I'm good at placating, right? I'm used to this. I'm used to people assuming I must be stupid, right? And so I say, yeah, like, exactly. She must be dumb, right? And so I, I look at the guy and I say, oh, thank you for that information. We'll keep a close eye on those kids. Then the guy walks away. You know, and and I turn back to my friend, and and we keep chatting. And I'm not kidding, Layla, like two minutes later, this guy walks over and says, I noticed you haven't spoken to your children about playing. I can go speak to them for you. And at that point, you know, my my friend and I stand up and we're like, sir, you need to back away. You need to not talk to the children. That's not appropriate. We understand that you are, you know, communicating with us, but you, you need to kind of move on. And he he was so arrogant and so offended that we asked him to leave us alone and, and move away until I told him, sir, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto holding a Canada Research Chair and a CIFAR AI chair. I am very happy to call campus security and have a full-fledged discussion about uh you know, interactions on campus. It, like it took taking out my degrees and like like explaining to him no, I have a role in your power structure for him to leave me and my kids alone. Like we, I think the thing that is really surprising to me is like, who told you that your opinion was valid about another person not touching you, not interacting with you, just just hanging out in a park with her kids. Like, why do you think that, you have the right to come and interfere with, with
0: anything. It's, it's very, anyway, it's very strange to me. But you know, that brings me to something that you and I talk about a lot. Cause you said like, who told him he can think that way. And you taught me that data told him he can think that oh, way yeah. because data is not based on us. It's not based usually on women as a whole or minorities. Can you help me understand that again? It's, it's one of the most offensive things
1: that I think as a scientist, I have to deal with. It's that, uh, there is this, um, this great book, uh, that I, that I purchased recently. And, uh, I, I will tell you Layla that I have to, um, I have to read a chapter of it. Um, and then I have to walk away and be angry for like a month and read just lots of like uh, fiction to recover. And then I go back and read another chapter of it. It's, it's called invisible women. Uh, it was released last year. Uh, and it's by um, Carolyn Criado Perez. It's it's literally just a well referenced chapter by chapter examination of how uh, women are completely excluded from data collection um, and therefore, from evidence-based decision making, right? So when when we as scientists or policymakers try to make decisions about where we should build housing, what kind of jobs need to be um, incentivized, what healthcare is actually good for you, what healthcare is a bad practice, um, a- any any decision that we try to make, always we try to back it up with with data, right? We try to say, oh well, we looked at the numbers. Well, what if There are no women in those numbers and you know it's fine when people tell me uh you know it's really hard to get data from uh minorities uh you know because their numbers are small that's fine you know i I think we still have to prioritize that data but women are not a minority we are more than half of the global population and so it's not as if you could make a really simple argument and say well, our models don't work well or aren't well calibrated, our decisions are not well grounded in uh, data for your group, whatever that group happens to be, because you are a minority and there, there are just fewer of you. Um, that doesn't work when you're talking about women. And yet, uh, there's this wonderful, terrible book that just chapter after chapter talks about how uh, robustly excluded women are from uh, data and therefore from database decision-making.
0: So per your recommendation, I actually read that book and I was blown away to read that women are 25% of tech employees and 10% of tech executives. So forget being a minority, but as a woman, as more than half of the global population, we hold 10% of the leadership positions in technology. And that's actually been something cool about my journey. You you know that my co-founders are minorities. So at WISE, consequently, we don't have really much of a problem in terms of diversity because we are diverse, right? So it's kind of astounding to me that this is an issue, but also easy to believe because, I mean, are you like, how many women like you do you actually know? Probably not very many. I, I feel like that the problem is
1: women don't come to front of mind, or you know, minorities in general do not come to front of mind. But again, like for women, I keep coming back to women because, again, you might say for a minority, the definition of a minority is often that there are very few of you. Uh, women are not a minority. And so I, I feel like I just have to, you know, repeat that over and over again. Um, I, I think that the thing for me is that, you know, so I'm a professor now, right? And so I have to hire uh, students, right? You have to hire employees. I have to hire students. And one of the things that's, really, really sad is you will, you'll see a female student apply to a university and really smart, or really accomplished. And you'll look at the letters that the, the faculty who are recommending her write about her, right? And there have been some studies on this, uh, actually, that have looked at uh, holistically, right? They've looked at the data, quote unquote, and seen how men and women tend to be described when they have similar performance by objective measures. The women who are recommended as graduate students, they get adjectives like reliable, (laughs) dependent, sturdy, you know, solid performer. And I, I mean, I'm comparing this to letters, real letters that I'm reading about male students that say things like superb, genius, one of a kind, exceptional, they're both really positive statements. But somehow there is this uh, grounding for female students in the, you must be part of an ecosystem, you must be, you know, supportive and part of a community. uh, But scientists or scientists in training, well, they can be genius exceptions to the rule who, who think outside the box. And I was I was really talking to Hey, uh, there's a professor at UC Berkeley who uh, whose work I think is really uh, technically very interesting. And she and I were talking about her her technical work in reinforcement learning, Anka Dragan. But Anka and I were talking also about the lack of women in data and how that can lead to poor decision-making for half of the population. And she said, you know, I I thought once of something really funny. You know how they always say... You know, there's a, this really famous speech by, by several people at, at this point, honestly, sadly, but uh, one of the, the Harvard presidents, right, he, he made a speech saying that, you know, women, they're not, they're not as good at science, right, because uh, they have these emotions, right? And so it's, it's harder for women to be in science. She said, I had this moment, and I loved this. It was, it was one of the funniest things I've heard all year. She said, what if science had just started differently? what if there just happened to have been more founding women? And in this new reality, it was acknowledged because there's lots of really good management research that has shown that people who can work well in teams and communicate well, they're really good at making contributions and at helping the entire team succeed, right? So what if we were sitting in a room in this alternate reality, you and I, and we were saying, you know, it's so hard to hire men into our labs because men aren't good at communicating. Men don't really belong in science. They aren't good at collaborating. They're not team players, right? Like there's and she was saying these things and I was thinking that's that's so accurate, right? Right now we have this sort of characterization of people who are good at science or good at tech as having to be antisocial or lone wolf geniuses, or maybe abrasive in some way. And that's just not true, right? That's something that we as a society have sort of taken as a stereotype. Uh, there's no evidence that shows that uh, people who have those particular personality traits are more effective, are better
0: leaders, or do better research. 50% of undergraduate degrees go to women in technology, in chemistry, in math. And the idea that kind of the characteristics that are being called out in these recommendations are just basic competence. Like, of course, they're reliable. They're applying for their PhDs. Like (laughs) clearly the woman is competent, Uh, but, but you also parent with data. Like I'll never forget the story when I was at your house for dinner once and your daughter who was maybe five at the time and had stick straight hair came to you and said, mom, I want curly hair. My friends have curly hair. Do, Do you remember this? I, I do not remember this story. I feel so terrible. Okay, okay. I totally remember it. So she came to you and said, I want curly hair like my friends. And you took out chalk. It was chalk, I remember. And you you drew a circle and you drew an amoeba. And you said, hey, listen, okay, so your follicles look like this circle. So when your <gasps> hair grows out of it, it grows straight. Your friends have follicles that are amoeba shaped. So when their hair comes out, it comes out in a different you know, directions and, and it, that resulted coils and curls. And your daughter felt so much better about herself. I mean, I learned something so I can only imagine she did too. But I remember really admiring how you used data to parent as well. Oh, so
1: I, I have to say, uh, this is based on my, my, my own experiences as a very willful and precocious child. And I remember being very, ang- like I, I would throw tantrums I'm not exaggerating, like screaming, yelling tantrums, like in the grocery store. And my poor mother who had five children, right, had to just sort of scoot me to the side of that grocery aisle to deal with her other children who are not throwing themselves onto the floor and acting like monsters. And, And at some point, I think she realized what I am able to say now, which is when I didn't understand something, it was a source of... Like almost maddening frustration to me. I remember once I, we were at a zoo and I asked my mother. I must have been like five or six. I asked my mother, "How does the parrot fly?" And she said, "Oh, it it just scoops air by creating little pockets with its wings and it pushes itself up." And I said, "No, you know, air doesn't have pockets. What?" Uh, and, and, uh, I started screaming then at a, uh, frequency that the parrot started mimicking, which was not good for anybody. Like the, the entire, the entire zoo sort of migrated away from my section. But I I will tell you like this experience and and many more like it first, my mother deserves sainthood. Like, honestly, if anybody, they should canonize my mother. Do not pass go, do not collect 200. She just should go straight in. That experience is what informed my parenting where a lot of what I was frustrated by or saddened by were things that I didn't understand and things that just didn't make sense to me. And that that just made me like sad and angry and I was too little to communicate it well. And so a lot of what I try to do and not successfully all the time, right, I, I try really hard is communicate things to my kids in a way that they can understand them so that they they feel sort of confident about that thing. And they, they don't feel like it's, it's not that they're stupid. It's not that I didn't want to talk to them, right? It's that this is a concept that I can explain at many levels, hopefully, and I'll try to explain it at one level. And if you get that, we can always work up to a higher level. But I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Like nobody is perfect. I feel all the time. It's, it's not, it is not a simple thing to do.
0: So that really resonates because both my mom and dad were really keen on teaching things to us. And I think it went a long way with us the same way it did with you. Another thing for the audience that Marzia and I have in common is Marzia is one of five. I'm one of six. We both come from big families and both of our mothers are educators. Mine started a school and hers homeschooled. I just love you. I I love your journey so much. I am.
1: I am very happy that I have people who enjoy my personality because one of the things I I tell people is I, I feel like I have a very strong personality and it's not one of those like hidden. You'll you'll get to know it eventually. Like it is very obvious when you first meet me that I have a very strong personality and you are going to either really like it or really dislike it. But I I don't feel like I've grown on anyone, right? Like there's no time in my life where there's been a person who said, I I don't really care about you either way. You know, I'll I'll just wait and see how I feel. Like you're either okay with it or you're just not. (laughs) I feel like subtlety is for people who have like
0: a ton of time. It's like, I don't have time for subtlety. just, like, tell me what I need to know. But also, we can't afford it. Like, if you think about it, if you were subtle as a kid and quiet, growing up when we grew up in a hijab, we both put it on really young, we're immediately, like, oppressed and, like, forced to do things by our dad. I was loud in the way I dressed. I was loud in the way I spoke because I always had to define myself. And now that's not necessarily the case. But I I spent years defining myself. Years.
1: You're right, right? Like it's, there was definitely like a honing of identity, right? Because like when I was younger, there was always this, well, are you bald? Are you a terrorist? Where's Aladdin? You know, like all of these obnoxious things. And then 9-11 happened and it got even worse. Everybody was just suddenly super sensitized to any identity that could be Western Asian writ large, right? Like I don't care if you're from north africa or bangladesh right like or or, uh kazakhstan like you're you're in that area and i don't like you you had to sort of stand up for yourself you had to sort of push your own agenda and yeah i really hated it when people made and i know you and i have talked about this a lot it's like one of my you know everybody has their buttons right everybody has their pet peeves i really dislike it when uh, people do, I don't know what the right term for this is. You know, there's all of these, um, you know, there's like trauma porn or poverty porn. I don't like immigrant porn. You know, this, this happened once in front of me. There was an Iranian-American woman and she, she there was a mostly like a white, upper class, college educated audience around us. And she she started telling this story about like, oh, well, you know, growing up, my father beat me if i went out of the house and then you know my my mother wasn't allowed to even look at people and you know then i escaped that identity and look i'm so liberated now and and look at how much i'm like you and i'm not like them those people Mm -hmm. i am i am like you i'm one with you and i'm like you could be describing a poor white family in the midwest there is nothing special about gendered violence that ties it to your community or your, your identity. Like you're just using this trope to whitewash yourself. Like, why are you, why are you throwing, like, fine, whitewash yourself, do that, identify, but don't like throw the rest of us under the bus into a
0: system that already thinks about us that way. Like, why? It's literally internalized Orientalism. It's just like, that Orientalism stuff, like, I'm gonna use this whole trope to my advantage by agreeing that it's a thing and then disassociating myself from it to get clout from me. It's such an offensive thing to me. It's like, you sold your people out
1: and what did you get for it? I have like a minor complaint, which is, it's it's minor, I promise. So I... I'm on the program committee for the uh, NEURIPS conference. It's a very prestigious machine learning conference where people publish technical work and because of the acknowledged systemic issues with diversity and inclusion and equity in computer science generally, but machine learning specifically, there have been these affinity workshops that have usually run traditionally the day before the conference that have encouraged women, for example, to present their, their work. And so Women in Machine Learning is an affinity workshop that I helped organize as a graduate student. It's just showcasing technical work by women, right? It, it's, not, it's not like work about women. It's not like machine learning to save women. Or it, not, it has nothing to do with women. It's just interesting technical work on generative adversarial models, right? Whatever it is, but by a woman. And it's to try to address this issue often of, well, I've never seen a woman give a talk. And so I can't think of a woman I could invite to give a talk. And there have been these other really fantastic affinity conferences that have gained a lot of strength and brought a lot of really fantastic voices to the forefront. So I'm thinking of Black in AI as one example of great affinity workshop at NeurIPS. So last year, I was asked by some people in the organization, you know, they, they every year at this yearly conference, they get requests from practicing Muslims about, you know, is there a prayer room I could use, right? You know, because you're at this all day workshop and Muslims pray five times a day, some religiously observant Muslims, right? And so they, they want a place to pray. They just, it doesn't have to be a special holy place. They just need a room that where nobody's going to stare at them or like throw things at them. And so I volunteered to you know, sort of organize that effort and just have like a, a simple website that said, hey, if you need to pray, room 72 is available. You don't just go in and pray. It's fine, right? And that was great. So this year they asked me if I wanted to organize it again. And I told them, you know, we don't really need that because the conference is virtual this year. And they said, well, do you want to do something else? And I was thinking about... One of the things I really admire Black in AI for is they've taken a very direct and head-on stance to addressing not just there are Black people who do AI, but AI could either help or hurt Black people, right? So if we have models that don't work as well on Black people, then that's hurting that community. And they've highlighted a lot of that research. It's really great. So I thought, okay, let's take it in that direction. Let's let's recruit other Muslim organizers. And when I say Muslim, I mean Muslim with like a lowercase M. I mean like if you religiously identify, culturally associate, were born in a Muslim majority country and so often are stereotyped that way, but aren't yourself Muslim. Like I I mean big tent Muslim, right? Like any identity. And so I thought I'll just ask some of my friends I know who are Muslim and also who work in machine learning to help me organize. And then I'll, I'll invite a bunch of speakers to talk. They don't have to be Muslim speakers, but they'll talk about how technology could help or hurt Muslims, right? And so if you're listening and, and it hasn't already happened, you can go to our website. It's musiml.org. So it's M-U-S for Muslim, I for in, and then M-L for machine learning. So MUSIML.org. org. I have a lovely organizing team who's been so supportive, Mohammed Noorazi, Shakir Mohamed, Aya Salama. And we've gotten really fantastic talks from uh, people who are in tech, people who are in law, people who are in social sciences. We have a policy panel on the intersection of policy, technology, and being Muslim. So I'm, I'm very excited about where it is now. But Layla, let me tell you, at some point, I asked somebody if they would help me organize, and this guy said, well, I don't really want people to associate me with being Muslim. Like, I, I don't want my name on the on the on the website. And I was like, what? But like, also, you know, this guy's name is like, Muhammad Rizal. you know, like, whatever. It's like, people know, dude, people know that you are Muslim with a lowercase m. And then we had we had even more issues with getting people to agree to give a talk. You know, people didn't want to talk about technology being used to deny uh immigration status or to profile Muslims by the FBI or to discriminate against Uyghur Muslims in China. I had several people say, like, well, I don't want to talk about that on camera. I'm afraid about my visa status. So it was just it was a very frustrating experience. I so my my uh my colleague, uh friend Shakir Mohammed, who's co-organizing with me. He made this this great joke. He said, you know, it was it's just like when he was organizing some of the uh the queer in AI initiatives where people were like, "Well, don't out me. I don't I don't want to be like on your website, right? Like, you know, because I don't want to be outed." And I I I do feel like, you know, going all the way back to this very first statement that you made, like I don't really have the choice to be outed or not, right? And, you know, maybe if I took off my hijab, I could pass for white, right? Like if, if it was so important to me, then fine, I could do it. But what about people who are not really pale? If that's my go-to, if that's my solution, how ridiculous is that? Like, I don't, I don't understand this idea, this narrative, this mindset that like, I can just look down. I can just put my hands by the side of my face. It'll just go away,
0: right? Like that's, that just doesn't make sense to me that resonates so much with me and it makes your work all that more important and who you are all that more important. For those who are listening and are so inspired and want to be you, what's what's the advice you would give to them right now?
1: Oh man, that's hard. I feel like you shouldn't aim to be me. You should aim to be like better than me in some, in some way. I have some general piece of a, pieces of advice that people have given me over the years that have not steered me wrong. So I, I might pass those along. One is... You should pick people, not projects. What I mean by that is when I was a new computer science, software engineer at Intel, right fresh out of undergrad, I had a bunch of options for interesting projects I could have picked. And I actually picked the projects based on the managers. And that's because somebody within Intel, Laila Ibrahim, who uh, I believe now works for DeepMind told me, you can have the best project in the world and a bad manager will make you fail. But if you are surrounded by good people, it doesn't matter what they give you, you're going to find something fantastic to do with yourself and with your team. And I have really taken that to heart in my own life and in my career. You will have projects that you're passionate about But if you're not surrounded with people who are at least neutral to you, but hopefully enabling you, it is incredibly difficult to be successful. And so I really recommend that people be aware of the the people they choose to be around. And if you're in a bad advising situation, if you're in a bad friendship, if you're in a bad professional situation, I strongly recommend that you try to change it because if you are around people who are trying to bring you down, there, there is no project that you will be able to succeed at. They'll be able to sabotage anything. So I think that that's my, my first and most salient piece of advice. My second piece of advice is don't plan on an end point. What I mean by that is remember during uh, my PhD, we would have you know board game nights, right? So I I would, uh, you know, cook food and invite like you and others over and you guys would come hang out. I did that because I wanted to enjoy the journey of my PhD. I didn't want to say heads down, suffer, don't be yourself, don't enjoy anything, get that PhD, you know, don't look left, don't look right, don't be distracted. Like, what if in the end I got my PhD and I decided I didn't actually want to do that thing? It happens, right? Like life, life is crazy. The universe is complex. What a waste that would have been then. I think you should look at every journey as a journey, right? Not as just the thing I have to do to get to some end point, right? Like you should look around and appreciate where you are because maybe when you get to the end, it won't be the end
0: anymore. Honestly, it's been a pleasure having you. The bar has been set so high. Now is the part of the podcast where you do your plugs. Where do people find you? What do you want the world to know about?
1: I I will give, uh, you know, three professional plugs, right? Uh, Number one, I'm moving to MIT this summer and I'm recruiting graduate students. If you don't see somebody who looks like you in my lab or in machine learning generally, that means that there's a spot for you. That means we're missing your voice. We're missing your ideas. And so I would strongly encourage people to apply to the the graduate program at MIT. We could always use more smart, diverse individuals. And I really think that the best part about being a professor is training students. The second thing is definitely attend uh, Muslims in Machine Learning, the affinity workshop for NERPs. We have a really exciting lineup. And the uh, last thing I would say is, uh, you know, it's been a tough year for everybody, right? 2020 has uh, been rough there's this great, you know, everybody I think has like their favorite thing about their religion and their least favorite thing about their religion, which is a whole other podcast topic. My favorite thing about my religion, honestly, is the emphasis on charity, but on charity that is given not necessarily to a centralized religious power source, like a like a church or a mosque, right? So Muslims have to give money to charity yearly, but, you know, they, they don't have to give it to like a charity through the mosque or even necessarily to, you know, a person that they know, right? And so my, uh, my uh, you know, 2020 sort of therapy recovery goal for you would be if you feel like things really suck, maybe give some money to your favorite charity and make somebody else's life better too.